Welcome to the BreastCancer.org podcast, the podcast that brings you the latest information on breast cancer research, treatments, side effects, and survivorship issues through expert interviews, as well as personal stories from people affected by breast cancer. Here's your host, BreastCancer.org Senior Editor, Jamie DiPolo. Hello, thanks for listening. We know that disparities exist in healthcare, including in breast cancer outcomes and in general care before someone is diagnosed. Evidence suggests that structural racism, including how doctors talk to their patients and what they talk to them about, may be at the heart of some of these disparities. Our guest today is Dr. Jennifer Griggs, a breast medical oncologist who is a professor of hematology and oncology and health management and policy at the University of Michigan Medical School and School of Public Health. Much of her research focuses on the quality of cancer care and the effect of care on outcomes and disparities in certain populations. One of Dr. Griggs's recent studies found that coaching patients to talk to their doctors about their concerns about their care and advocate for themselves can offset doctors' implicit biases and lead to better care for black patients. Dr. Griggs joins us to talk about the study. Dr. Griggs, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. So first, could you tell us how the idea for this study came about? What was the background? Of course. Underlying goal of the study was to test the hypothesis that it's not only the physician's implicit bias, but that those biases are triggered by behaviors that patients have been taught to exhibit in doctor appointments in order to be perceived as likable or not a difficult patient. We know that, for example, Black patients work much harder to be um, perceived as positively by their physicians. I'll give an example. Um, As a breast oncologist, my Black patients are much more likely to feel they need to dress up and be presentable and be in a much more positive light um, by the doctors in order to get equivalent care. We haven't actually shown that dressing up in a particular way changes the care you get, but we know that Black patients work extra hard to make sure they do everything possible to to be perceived positively. So the idea for the study came in um, this is these are actually trained actors who played the part of somebody with advanced cancer and it happened to be lung cancer in this case we were particularly interested in looking at how uh, pain was managed according to patient behavior and the thought was that we could train our actors who played patients and were undetected by most doctors. So the, so the physicians gave consent to be in the study and to have an unannounced actor call on them. Um, so this, these were unannounced patients played by actors that the doctors knew were coming, but they didn't know the particular patient who it would be. I hope that's clear. Yeah. And, so the uh, doctors were kind of, they were seeing patients during the day, but they didn't know which one would be the actor. Exactly. And each physician, and these were primary care doctors and oncologists, saw two patients. And the differences in the patients, the actors, 
was that one was more typical, I'll explain that in a moment, and one was more activated. And our thought was that we could activate patients and that might help override some of the disparities we see in pain management between black and white patients. The idea came about because we know there are disparities in pain management between black men in particular and white men. And our goal was to see, could we alter the patient behavior, not as an intervention, but more as a test to see if doctors implicit biases could be overcome. It's pretty complicated study. It was complicated mm -hmm. to run and it's complicated to understand as well. So let me know if any of that wasn't clear. No, that was. And so when you talk, could you explain though a little bit, um, and maybe you were going to do this, the difference between an activated patient and I guess a regular patient, if that's the correct terminology? That's right. It is, absolutely. We called it a typical patient because most patients don't interrupt doctors, don't re-ask a question if it's not been answered. In fact, I'm a physician. If I go in and ask my doctor a question, it's not answered to my satisfaction. I hesitate to ask for more clarification. Here I am, a white physician. You know, these are my peers. And if my needs aren't met in the appointment, I don't follow up. I'll, I'll go to WebMD or do a PubMed search to get my own questions answered or reach out to a colleague. So, so I'm a typical patient and a typical patient won't, you know, put their list of medications out first. This was a patient transferring care. They'll wait till they're asked. So in our activated scenario, both white and black actors would ask the question again if it wasn't answered. They'd proactively get out a list of their medications. If the physician was talking and it wasn't the direction that the patient wanted to go, they would interrupt and say, I'm sorry, I'm not, I wasn't clear, um, or that's not quite what I'm asking. So a really activated patient, you know, these are, this would be somebody even more activated than, than you or I might be in an appointment. And we worked very hard to standardize the questions and behavior of the patient so that we were what we were trying to do was get rid of person effects. So anytime you do an intervention or a study, people say, well, that patient didn't make eye contact or that patient, you know, there are other things about that patient other than their race that's different. So it's not really race because as you know, the medical profession has a really hard time acknowledging that we have racism in our field. It's, it's something that we find just so troubling and we get very defensive about. So what we wanted to do is get rid of any effect of that particular patient's behaviors. So our activated patients would make eye contact as another example. Okay. And so in the results, we haven't gotten there yet, but I guess what I'm wondering, I mean, the results, the activated patients seem to get more equitable care, but I'm wondering if there were differences between, say, an activated black patient and an activated white patient in the doctor's perceptions of, because as you talk about, you said you trained them to be activated, but not perceived as difficult. 
but I'm wondering mm. if some of the implicit bias came through. So if a black was a black activated patient, perhaps perceived as difficult. That was something we really worked on calibrating. So we coached or calibrated the actors not to be confrontational or too activated, right? We didn't want them to be in charge or to stand up during an appointment because, you know, we we didn't want to play on stereotypes, which would trigger differences in prescribing or conversational um, behaviors of the clinicians. So yes, it's very possible that our activated black patients were perceived differently from our activated white patients. And in fact, what we showed in other publications from this study is that regardless of activation, black patients were much less likely to receive appropriate pain management. So this study looked at ratings of the communication style. It didn't always, it didn't necessarily look at um, this, so this is a secondary analysis. It, the primary outcome was actually quality of pain management. Mm-hmm. And we saw that even regardless of activation or race, um, that we did see racial differences in pain management. This particular publication that we're talking about today, the secondary analysis, looked at the quality of the interaction and the fact that an activated Black patient received the same quality of communication, regardless of implicit bias of the doctor. We are interpreting that. Obviously, one, you know, you can't control for absolutely everything. Mm-hmm. We're interpreting that, that the implicit bias was overridden by our activated patients, who, again, were not so activated that we played into stereotypes of an angry or difficult patient, regardless of race. You know, we all mm-hmm. have angry, angry white patients. So it was tricky. And and the implications of this, of course, are that the burden is on the patient to act within a certain range of acceptable behaviors. You can't be too forceful. You can't interrupt too much. And it does concern me that we, we don't want this study to be interpreted that we need to narrow even more the behaviors of patients that are deemed acceptable to get good care. Right. Well, and, and that sort of brings up another question to my mind. And I'm not saying your study did this, but it suggests that perhaps the burden for having good communication with a doctor falls on the patient, like the patient has to advocate for themselves. But if somebody with cancer, they're already doing so many things, you know, they're managing their insurance, they're managing their payments, their job, childcare potentially. So while I know this is very interesting, I'm also wondering, is this something that patients may be able to do? Like, is this putting one more thing on a patient. I do worry about that. Yes. And they're not only managing the other parts of their life, they're being bombarded with information, some of which is more or less relevant to them. The care coordination itself, and then to have to sort of calibrate your behavior so that you get good care Mm -hmm. is, it could be 
I mean, there are unintended consequences of any study, right? And, you know, especially a behavioral study and almost every tool can be used as a weapon, right? So the tool would be activating patients and that could be a weapon in that patients who don't get good care, well, it's their fault. They didn't advocate properly for themselves. They weren't well-educated about such and such. And I really... I share your concern. And as I've gotten, you know, we started this study years ago. And as we've gotten more and more aware of the structures that are in place, have we now put yet another structure or another message to patients that they need to act a certain way, but not so much that way? And uh, that my, in thinking about this deeply, I think the message from this paper and this analysis is that we do treat patients differently based on their behavior and that the burden should not be on the patients. If we want to provide equitable care, we need to make not just the physicians, the oncologists, but everybody in the healthcare system, that people are likely to get different care based on their behaviors in the healthcare system. And that what we really need to do is activate clinicians to be more aware of behaviors that might uh, lead us to give poor quality care. So it's sort of the inverse of uh, the good news about this study is that patients can be you know, coached to get better care. What about this? What about physicians need to be aware that their patients are um, less likely to get good care from the very same doctor if they don't make eye contact and that we need to be heightened in terms of our monitoring our own behavior. Do I give, for example, the same high quality interaction, information, support, and time in my patient encounters with patients who might be more uh, demure, quieter, less likely to interrupt? Do I need to monitor how much time I spend with my patients and make sure that's equitable? Do I need to make sure there's somebody else monitoring my behavior who could say, just like we have chaperones in the room now, who could say later, you know, I noticed during that conversation, the patient didn't ask a lot of questions. And in fact, the amount of information you gave was less. And do this in a partnering way, right? Not do it in an accusatory way, but help us be more curious about our own behaviors in a patient encounter. Okay. Well, I'm wondering too, one thing we try to do at breastcancer.org is is give people action steps. So I'm wondering for this study, is there something patients can take away here? Like if they wanted to be more activated, um, even just a couple things, like as you said, make eye contact. Is that something perhaps somebody who's going in to see their doctor could consider or going in with a list of questions and sort of saying, you know, I hear I, these are the questions I have. Is that something you see coming out of this? Because it sounds like maybe you, you wouldn't be offering this training to patients or, or would you, I don't know. Yeah. So actually Dr. Epstein, one of the co-authors on this paper did a study called voices published in journal of clinical oncology And what they did in that study was they took real patients, not standardized patients, 
and coached them to be more active in their, these were serious illness conversations in those conversations. So we know that um, this kind of work can be done. My, my bias is that that's one patient at a time. And, and I know that uh, my colleagues would agree with me, we need to make systemic changes. So yes, we can coach patients. And I would say to listeners who are interested in how can I overcome doctors' biases that of course they're implicit because they're called implicit because the doctor doesn't know about them. What are things that I can take away from this study to do the best I can and get the best care? So I would say, yes, your listeners can practice um, making eye contact in encounters where they don't have as much power, right? We're talking about power asymmetries here. So the physician just by virtue of it's their turf, theirs, knowledge asymmetry, where they know more than nearly all patients, that to be aware of the fact that we want to provide good care. So if we're not meeting your needs and not giving the information support, I would encourage listeners to say, thank you. That was very helpful. My question is specifically about X rather than Y. But doctors don't like to feel that we're not trusted. And that's kind of a double bind, isn't it, for our mm -hmm. patients don't trust us. You know, we, we start to uh, worry when we're not trusted. And then the whole conversation is about us, our impression management, rather than meeting the needs of our patients. So asking questions, having a set number of questions ordered in priority, and then taking time before you leave the doctor's visit to say, let me just take a moment to look at my questions and make sure they were answered. That pause is yours. You get to do that. We take a timeout in the operating room. We do a timeout before giving chemo. You get to take a timeout and say, thank you, doctor. I just want to look at my questions again and make sure they were answered. And if others come up later, how do I get my questions answered between appointments? So giving yourself permission to take that time to make sure your needs are met. We work for you. It doesn't always feel that way, <laughs> but we work for you. And I think physicians would be quite disturbed if they felt that they hadn't met their patients' needs. That's what we love. We love teaching our patients. We love making sure We've met their needs, regardless of, you know, our priors, our expectations of our patients. We want to give better care. So, you know, calling on your doctors, better angels, to meet your needs, that's, that's where the magic happens. Okay, thank you. I do. I have one last question. Um, I'm wondering, and, and I know your study didn't involve a patient bringing someone else in with them. But is, in your opinion or in the other research you've done, does that help get better care if there's another person there to sort of, I guess, either for moral support for the patient or maybe remind the patient like, oh, hey, you didn't ask this question. Um, it, has any of your work looked at that or do you, do you think that's a good thing in your experience? I do. And actually, there are lots of reasons 
by bringing in another person, whether it's a navigator or a family member. So it doesn't have to be somebody in your own circle. It could actually be something that the system provides. A navigator um, does a couple things. Number one, it helps the physician know that you have support. And that's really important when we're starting treatment, especially in the curative setting where we don't actually know if a given patient needs adjuvant therapy, for example. And you could see how a physician might not give as much treatment or they might hold back um, on their recommendations if they believe that somebody has less social support. And this, again, can all be implicit. So it can help in showing that you have support as a patient. The second thing it can do is be a second set of ears. And I will often have the person accompanying my patients bring a notepad or I'll give them a piece of paper to write down their own questions. And then they can do that that um, pause and say, let's make sure we've gone over all the questions that you had. Because as a listener, the patient, you, your mind is going in a million different directions, things you're not even sharing with the clinician. Like, how am I going to make work work? How am I going to take care of my kids? How am I going to get through for the next few months all the things I need to do to take care of myself and my family? And that other person can say, let's take a look at your questions or can be with your permission, you know, given permission to ask questions that were on your list. There's a lot of work. As I'm thinking about this, it's a lot of work, but this is your life and any tools, if we can think about these as tools as opposed to commandments, I think that can be really helpful. These are you, you have permission to bring somebody in with you, and it doesn't have to be your partner. It can be somebody from your community who can be in that role. Just let them know what it is you need, you know, to, in that encounter, in that visit. You know, we have a hard time as clinicians recognizing our own biases. And I, again, to repeat, I don't think the burden should be on the patient to overcome that. But being aware that these things can be overcome, I think, gives us some hope as clinicians, as healthcare systems, and as patients, and those who love us as patients. Great, terrific questions, and really got me thinking in preparation. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your insights. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to the BreastCancer.org podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. To share your thoughts about this or any episode, email us at podcast at breastcancer.org or leave feedback on the podcast episode landing page on our website. And remember, you can find a lot more information about breast cancer at breastcancer.org. And you can connect with thousands of people affected by breast cancer by joining our online community.